the uh, second book in the Bible. Exodus uh, chapter 1 is where we'll begin this morning. We'll be in Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to read the first seven verses. All right. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've given us. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's God-breathed. I thank you that it's inspired from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Uh, I thank you for the story of Exodus. I thank you for what it shows us ultimately about who you are, God, uh, about your character uh, and about what you do and how you work in and through people. Um, God, I thank you for what it shows us about us and about our need for a Savior and our need for redemption. I thank you that it shows us our story, the story of the church, Father, and of what you've done to secure a people And so I pray today that as we begin this study that that we would ultimately make much about Jesus and see how this story points us to him uh, and see how it points to uh, your church. Uh, I pray if anyone in here does not know you, Father, that today they would put their faith and trust in you and that you would save souls in this room. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Just very quickly, I want to say thank you to Justin. Justin's one of my students, so if you guys were wondering who this kid was, all right? Uh, he's a seminary student right now. He's in town visiting us for a couple days. And I said, hey, you're reading scripture. And he did a great job. So the book of Exodus, right? Now, the book of Exodus was written by Moses. Uh, it is the second, books of five, uh, second of five books written by Moses, known as the Pentateuch. And now there's plenty of debate on when the book was written. Uh, if you were in Sunday school this morning, uh, maybe your teacher gave you a handout uh, of when it was written. Uh, Part of the reason is that the narrative refers to the cities that the people of Israel were building in Egypt and the length of their time in Egypt, but it does not include the names of any of the kings of Egypt. And so there are two theories on when the book was written. There's plenty of arguments to support both, okay? There's plenty to support an early date of Exodus around 1446 BC, but then there's plenty of arguments that support a later date of Exodus of around 1260 BC. Uh, Upon my study, I would probably tell you I favor a later date for the writing uh, of Exodus, but honestly, it doesn't matter because what Moses wants us to know and what he wants us to see is made very, very clear throughout the text, and that's the important thing. The book of Exodus shows us many things, okay? First off, the book of Exodus is a story about liberation. The Israelites are rescued from slavery in Egypt through a series of extraordinary encounters and miracles. And their liberation points to a greater liberation. It's the liberation of God's people from slavery to sin. The book of Exodus shows us sacrifice. 
The Israelites are threatened by death just as much as the Egyptians. Like everyone else, God's people are guilty and deserve the judgment of death. But they're saved by daubing the blood of sacrifice on the door, homes, the, the door frames of their homes. So redemption through sacrifice is then built into the rhythms of the Israelites' life. Exodus emphasizes God's presence, right? The book doesn't end in chapter 14 with Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea, right? Some of that's dated, right, for some of these. Like, who's Charlton Heston? Christian Bale, right? Didn't he do that one too? I don't know. God's people are liberated from slavery, and they're liberated for God's presence. The law and the tabernacle create a framework in which God's people can enjoy God's glory. And see, what's interesting about the book of Exodus is that the people don't move from slavery to freedom. In fact, the people move from slavery to slavery. The Hebrew word avad, meaning slavery, also means worship. So the people will serve God. They will be slaves, as Paul will later say, to righteousness. And this service will be different from serving Pharaoh. God's service is where we find true freedom. And so it's through this that we get our mission as the people of God. God reveals his name to the whole world. So in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, he says his name will be proclaimed in all the earth. In Exodus chapter 20, 20 verse 7, we're told that God's people are called to bear his holy name uh, in a holy manner. So in other words, Exodus shows us that God's people become shaped by God's law to become a royal priesthood and a holy nation, displaying God's character to the entire world world. In a very simple outline, I think it was in your handout today for the book of Exodus and our time in Exodus would would look like this, okay? Is that first and foremost is that God works sovereignly. And we see God works sovereignly in the life of Moses and in the life of Pharaoh, especially where we get to the section where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And we'll talk about that. God works sovereignly to save people and then distinguishing his people first and foremost from the Egyptians and then he will distinguish his people from all the peoples on the earth as he gives them the law and as he shows them what he wants for his people and then finally God works sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory and that's a brief outline or simple outline of what what we'll be looking at as we study the book of Exodus now, I know that the question probably comes up, and it comes up by a lot of people, is why in the heck are we studying Exodus? I mean, seriously, what has that got to do with us? And maybe you're hoping that today I was going to start a sermon series on anxiety, or maybe on marriage, or uh, maybe on finances, or maybe with an election coming up, maybe I would talk about that dumpster fire that's going to happen, right? <laughs> Instead, you get Exodus. I'm sorry. But but the answer is the book of Exodus is ultimately about God. And hear me, it's about a right understanding and a right view of God who then shapes and affects every felt need that you and I can imagine. See, Exodus will help us get underneath all the felt needs and it gives us a view of God that can transcend those felt needs and give us confidence in the God of the Bible. See, it's a very small understanding of God that leads to so many of the ills in our hearts and in our relationships with one another. So a right understanding of who God is, is primary, and it's the primary pursuit of those who are serious about life 
under the Lord. All right? But, but ultimately, listen to me on this. The story of Exodus, it's our story. It's the story of the church. Jay read it this morning, but in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul will tell us that these things have been written down for our instruction. So, so whenever we're reading the story of Exodus, we read it knowing that, that this is story is for us. We're not just studying ancient history, that these events have direct application to us as Christians. In fact, in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, if you remember the story, Jesus takes his disciples, right? He takes three of them, and they go to the Mount of Olives, and on the Mount of Olives, he's transfigured in front of them, right? All of a sudden, his glory is shining out, and all of a sudden, there's Moses, and there's Elijah, and they're all hanging out, and they're all talking, and Jesus is visiting with them, and he's telling them that he is about to deliver his people, or that he's about to, uh, about his departure, that word departure in the Greek is the word exodon. It means exodus. That Jesus was telling them that I am about to accomplish a new exodus. See, the book of Exodus sets God's story on a trajectory that comes to a climax with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus sets us free from slavery to sin. He's our Passover lamb whose sacrifice rescues us from judgment and from death. He's God's presence on earth. He is God tabernacling with us. And we have seen God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. His resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. So see, the book of Exodus is really the key to understanding the person and work of Jesus. It graphically reveals the means of our salvation through sacrifice and the content of our salvation and enjoying God's presence in a world that's made new. Exodus is an exciting story because, listen to me, church, it's our story. It's the story of God's church. So just very quickly, if you would, flip over one page, or maybe it's just the next page. If you look at Genesis chapter 50 with me. See, it's very important that we look at Genesis chapter 50 because Moses does something very important in this chapter and that he emphasizes Four very important truths that he wanted the children of Israel to understand, all right? Four truths that we will see here in just a moment apply to us now. So in verses 1 through 6, and we're not going to read it. You can check it out later, but you can make notes if you want. In verses 1 through 6, what Moses does is he emphasizes in the death of Jacob that God's servants come and go. They live and die, but his promises endure. The transition from Jacob to Joseph in the line of promises stresses the enduring nature of God's promise to Abraham as it's been passed on to Isaac and to Jacob and to Israel and to Joseph and to all the sons of Israel, okay? So Moses shows us that, again, the patriarchs come and go, but God's promise endures and his faithfulness continues through all generations. Then in verses 7 through 13... God shows us that the grace that marks his people's hope. So what we see is that Jacob dies, but Jacob's grave is not in Egypt. Jacob's grave is in Canaan. Jacob's burial site reminds us of the promise of land, and it's setting Israel's hope in the land of promise, in the land of Canaan. So Israel's hope will not be found in Egypt. Israel's place is not in Egypt. It's in the land of Canaan. In verses 14 through 21, and specifically in verse 20, it emphasizes more clearly 
than anywhere else in the Bible that God is sovereign and has been sovereign even over the darkest period of Joseph's life. Remember that great verse that what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. And then finally in verses 22 through 26, Joseph reminds his family of the covenant of promise of God to Abraham. And that promise is going to point Israel forward in days that are soon to be very, very dark. See, all these truths have significance if you're slaves in the land of Egypt. Because see, the book of Genesis, as Matthew Henry tells us, begins with light and life and ends with death and darkness. Derek Kidner says from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50, man traveled from Eden to a coffin. But the last words of Genesis 50 are encouraging. If you're a Hebrew slave, you you can remember those truths that God's servants die. His promise endures. Because Joseph dies and it spells disaster for God's people, but God's promise will endure and God will raise up another servant and another servant and another servant as he brings about his promises for the people. The children of Israel need to know that their hope is, is elsewhere. It's not in the land of Egypt. It's beyond that. They needed to remember that God is in control, especially in the hardship of his people. Later on in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 22, Paul would say this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God, that the church will go through trials and struggles on their way to God's kingdom. And it's a reminder to the people that there is no wasted suffering for the people of God. So the book of Genesis and Exodus, see, you can't read them separately from one another. Exodus is just a continuation of the book of Genesis, right? So look with me, if you will, in Exodus chapter 1. We'll read the first six verses. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar. Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So see, these verses are preparing us for the switch from a family to a nation. If you remember, God chose a man named Abraham and his family. And in Exodus, he turns that large family into a nation. There's 70 who go into Egypt. There are tens of hundreds of thousands that are going to come out of Egypt at the end. And the overarching message of verses 1 through 6 is that God is making a people for himself. So if you look at verse 1, most of your translations will say now or these. But in Hebrew, the first word of chapter 1 is actually and. And so as you read um, Genesis chapter 50, you're supposed to read verse 28 or 26 that says, So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. So sorry, English teachers. Moses starts a sentence with and. But what he's trying to do is show you and I the connection from, to Genesis and Exodus. It shows the connection of the promise to Abraham and their fulfillment in Exodus from Egypt to the land of Canaan. So verse 1 tells us of the sons of Israel. This is the last time in the first five books of the Bible that this phrase will refer to Jacob's immediate family. 
So from this point on in the first five books of the Bible, it will refer to the people of God as a whole collectively. It refers to a nation, a community of believers. Moses uses an interesting number. He says that 70 went down. So with these men and and their extended households, we know that more than likely, it was more than 70 people. In fact, in the book of Acts later on, Stephen uses the, the number 75 to say that they went into Israel. And what Moses is doing here is just using a number that in the Old Testament symbolized completeness. The number of nations that descended from Noah in Genesis chapter 10 was 70. It was a complete number. So it's a complete number. It's the whole of Israel that goes down into Egypt. And then verse 6 tells us that Joseph dies, and that reconnects us back to Genesis chapter 50, and it makes sure that we keep the story together, that we see this theme of promise and fulfillment. So Genesis is the story of God creating the world. Exodus is the story of his creation of the church. And the repetition of the the names of the patriarchs and scriptures is a reminder of how precious spiritual Israel, the church, is to God. And so throughout this opening six verses, we see the creation of a people, of a nation. We see the work of redemption throughout this passage. And we see God's sovereign sovereign, uh, providence is operative through the whole thing. That we can see behind the scenes, even when God's people are oppressed and overlooked, God is working and making a people for himself. And despite circumstances, he will accomplish his promise and his purpose. See, folks, listen to me. God has one plan of salvation, and it's the same plan in all ages. One plan, one purpose, one people. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, it shows us what that is. Look what he says. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Moses is being very deliberate here. Moses is linking God's purpose in Exodus to creation, to Noah, and to the promise that was made to Abraham. God has one plan of of salvation, all right? Now, I'm going to introduce something that may be new to some of you, but a lot of scholars will talk about covenant theology, that, that the story of the Bible is one of covenant Right, And you see that from beginning to end. And usually there are three covenants they talk about. All right, Today we're going to look at two. But, 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 but the three covenants are one, the covenant of redemption, which happened in the Godhead before time began, that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit worked out the plan of salvation. But then what you have is you have a covenant of works that was instituted first. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, you see the covenant of works playing out as God tells Adam, to be fruitful and multiply, to work the garden, right, to subdue the land, and then ultimately, what's he say? There's one tree, I want you to avoid that one tree. Stay away from that one tree, life will go good for you, everything will be fine, right, you'll live forever, you're gonna enjoy all the land, just stay away. That's the covenant of works. But if you've grown up in church, you know the story, right? Genesis chapter three, they can't keep that, they blow it, And we mess up the covenant of works. And so starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what we see happen is the proto-evangelion or the first gospel is that God comes to our parents immediately after they sin and he promises them redemption through a savior. 
through a Savior who will be born of a woman, and that this Savior will be the one to come and to do battle with the serpent and ultimately crush his head. And so from this point on in the Bible, from Genesis 3.15 until the cross of Jesus Christ, we are under what is known as the covenant of grace. See, God has one covenant of grace, and though it comes in different administrations, he has one plan, one purpose, and one people. And so let's trace this backwards. If you look at Exodus 1.7, right, let's read it one more time. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In Genesis 46.3, God says this. He says, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Exodus 1.7 is Moses' way of saying, hey, guys, guess what? God is already fulfilling his purpose. It may not look like it to you guys. I know you're oppressed. I know you're in slavery. But there are a whole bunch of you guys, right? You keep growing and growing and growing. Genesis 35, 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Notice the emphasis. It's on multiplying. It's on growing. It's the exact same language that Moses uses in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. In Genesis 17, 6, he's talking to Abraham. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, again talking to Abraham, he says, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Do you see the connection there? Moses is trying to connect Exodus 1-7 and the promise that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, but he doesn't stop there. It goes further. Look at Genesis 9-7 when God's speaking to Noah. What's he say? And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. One plan of redemption, one plan, one purpose, one people. But check this out. It goes further than that. The redemption in Exodus is linked to creation. What does Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says? And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, that language comes from the creation ordinances of marriage and procreation. But it indicates that though God's people were oppressed, God's hand of blessing was upon them. See, through their obedience to be fruitful and multiply, do you see what God's doing? They were gaining the advantage over their enemies, the Egyptians. Legan Duncan puts it this way. He says, and hence we learn also that God's creation ordinances, first instituted before the fall under the covenant of works, are still in effect under the covenant of grace. And his blessings in the covenant of grace are tied to their fulfillment as they are originally given to God's people. God grows his people according to his commands and in the context of his sanctifying providence. The story of Exodus is our story, church. It's the story of God and his people. See, what you and I know now is that on this side of the cross, that the covenant of grace has found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 
who stepped down out of heaven. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. He took our place. He rose again, securing our salvation, reconciling us to God, then imputing or crediting his righteousness to our account. Now, therefore, God can deal with you and I as if we have never sinned. So listen to me this morning, church. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then the message of the gospel, then the message of this story of Exodus, it belongs to you today. This is your story. See, those four things that we talked about out of Genesis chapter 1, those belong to you and I. So, so maybe you're in here and what you see in the first part of Exodus is that the growth of the church, it can be a painful process, can it not? As God grows us and as God weans us away from worldliness, as we put to death those things that are still inside of us, it's a painful process sometimes. Because honestly, we don't want to leave those things behind. But God is going to grow his church. God is going to sanctify us as believers. He will accomplish what he started. But corporately, listen, we need to remember that God's faithful to his church throughout the ages. This church is about to turn 100 in a couple months. Pastors come and go. Some have been good, some not so good. God's remained faithful to his people. God will continue to remain faithful to, faithful to his people. So again, pastors come and go, leaders come and go. God's promises never go away. Maybe you need to remain reminded today that this world is not your home. Much like the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites needed to remember that Egypt was not their home. They were bound for something else. Sometimes we get too comfortable here, don't we? Sometimes we think this is where we are, and, and we forget that our hope is not in this life, but in the next life, that our hope is not even here. It's in a person, and it's in Jesus Christ. And so this story is for you because it reminds us that we're headed somewhere, and it's not here. And then maybe, finally, listen, the third thing. Maybe you need to hear the promise that if you're in Christ, no matter what you face in this life, it has gone through the hands of of God Almighty. As Joseph said in, in Genesis 50, 20, that he's using all of our circumstances for our good and for his glory. That there are no wasted sufferings for the people of God, for those who are under the covenant of grace. So Exodus, it's your story. It's my story. And that's why it's so important. Now, maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. Then listen to me. This isn't your story. If you don't know Jesus, you're outside of the covenant of grace. We, we talked about that or we sang about it last week in that song that it said, covenant promises fail not to me. But that doesn't mean you're hopeless. See, see, there's hope in this room that you can be brought into the covenant and it's not by your good deeds, it's not by your church attendance, it's not by your merit. It's only found through the perfect life and shed blood of Jesus Christ who took our place and then rose again showing you that your debt has been paid in full. And so today, if you don't know Jesus, have we talked about him as we've talked about what he's done for us and, and maybe he's stirring your heart today, that's just God calling you and wooing you. Don't leave here today until you talk to somebody and say, hey, I didn't know Jesus, but today something's changed. Trust in Jesus and know that the story of Exodus, the story of God rescuing his people, the church, that can become your story today. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it is applicable to us. 
I thank you that the story of Exodus is not just ancient history, but it's, it's the story of you saving and redeeming a people for your own possession and for your own glory. Father, it's our story, and so I pray for my brothers and sisters in here today who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that today, that they would see that, and that as we study this book in the coming months, that they would see themselves in it. Father, I thank you that you have accomplished an exodus. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. We thank you that if we are in Christ, Father, then we are counted as righteous and that we have a right standing with you. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, I pray that as the gospel was presented today, that today you've saved and you've changed lives and you've saved people in this room and that they would not leave today until they talk to me or a friend and just let them know what you've done for them. I pray now that as we stand and as we sing, that we would sing to you with all we have for what you've done for us through Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.